Well, hello everybody and uh, welcome to GUcast. Uh, my name is Declan Murphy, a urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and this is our um, opening episode of our podcast, which we call GUcast for uh, genital urinary. So all things GU cancer is what interests us and if you like that sort of stuff, we do hope you're going to like this podcast, which we hope to do quite regularly seeing as as we speak we're all sort of grounded and um, uh, here in Australia and all the way around the world uh, March 2020 nobody's going anywhere due to uh, COVID and all that so we hope uh, this might bring a bit of cheer uh, if you're interested in GU cancer. So I'm going to introduce my co-host Dr. Renu Epen here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Hello Renu. Hi Declan, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, so uh, that it's you and I. We're the tag team. We are um, GU cast at least for the moment. It's going to be exciting, I think. And of course, we're going to have lots of guests uh, as we get through stuff. And I'm really pleased to say that um, our first guest uh, on our inaugural episode is uh, our colleague here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, uh, Professor Michael Hoffman. Michael, hello. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on the first episode. It's amazing. And of course, part of our screening criteria for uh, seeing who would like to get involved in this was we asked the question, do you listen to podcasts? And uh, we all listen to podcasts, don't we? We do, every we day. Do. Absolutely. Should we have a bit of show and tell and, uh, and reveal what sort of podcasts we listen to? Renu? I, I like the Daily Scope. I think that's a great podcast to listen to on a daily basis. Uh, and just for fun, I do some brain teaser podcasts, which are quite nice on the way to the gym. Really? Michael? Oh, that's revealing. I like this podcast called The Knowledge Project. It's fantastic. Uh, It's got someone that has a similar accent to you, Declan, as the podcast leader. I listen to a bit of tech podcasts, Twit, and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. Really? Sometimes I go to sleep on podcasts. I used to listen to music on the way in on my bike uh, in the mornings uh, with my AirPods in, but I've been becoming increasingly aware of my own mortality, having come off the bike a few times. Uh, user error, as my wife uh, points out. Um, so I've started listening to podcasts, but I, I have to confess it's UK politics. Uh, that, that's what gets me interested. Brexit cast and um, anything that describes uh, the, the churn of UK politics in the past year. Uh, but part of the problem now is uh, it's all consumed by coronavirus, isn't it? Are yeah. you finding it in your daily podcast? Absolutely. I've listened to some some really great podcasts uh, surrounding this this whole debacle. Um, and yeah, it's a great way to get information and keep up to date. Yeah. And when you listen to these podcasts, Declan and Renew, do you listen to them at normal pace or do you speed them up? Why why is there another way to listen to a podcast? (laughs) Tell us, Michael. I usually listen to them between 1.2 to 1.4 speed. That's fantastic. You can get through an hour podcast in 40 minutes. What? And But what about the the voice goes all squeaky? Oh, no, it adjusts for that. It just sounds like talking faster like this. If you speed it up, it'll just go faster. You're kidding me. And tell me, are you are you doing something else while you listen to it at such a high speed or are you really focusing on what's being said? You've got to focus on what's being said. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you have limited processing power like me, I'm not sure could I cope with that. <laughs> anyway, so Michael, um, we've invited you on as our first guest, uh, myself and Renu. Um, you are a nuclear medicine physician uh, here at Peter Mac, a professor of uh, your specialty um, and it's been an exciting week because uh, this week you've published um, a landmark paper in The Lancet, uh, no less, uh, describing the outcomes of the pro-PSMA study. 
Um, and Renu, we have, uh, as urologists, uh, uh, a lot of interest in PSMA. I would say we, we have a lot of experience uh, in PSMA because it's been a, almost a community scan uh, here in Australia for the past um, five or six years. Um, but this pro-PSMA study, which we'll come to shortly, is, is an important prospective randomized trial that many people around the world have been waiting for. And we're going to ask you to go through the, the Lancet paper uh, and, and we'll then have some discussion about it. But Renu, can I ask you, you know, as a, as a, as a prostate cancer specialist uh, yeah. working here at Peter Mac, what are your, what's your take on PSMA already? I mean, I, th- I think it's a really exciting, exciting thing. And it's been wonderful to watch how it's really evolved and, and the role that it has now in all stages of prostate cancer. Um, and uh, this, this role of PSMA in the sort of sc- staging and screening area has really been one that's been heavily debated uh, in many, many stages. And it's, and it's really good to finally get some answers. So it's, I think it's exciting. It's part of the problem is we, we see a lot of these scans in practice here in Australia yeah. and, and often uh, it will turn a patient who's being staged for his prostate cancer from a non-metastatic patient into, oh, look at these bright, colourful dots on the PET scan look like metastases. And, and we mm-hmm. haven't had high quality evidence to allow us to interpret the truth of that, whether those yeah. scans are, are truly uh, the same or not. And we know that it can go the other way. It can, yeah. it can turn something very straightforward into into a diagnostic conundrum now what do you do uh, in a situation where a patient may have had straightforward treatment and that's part of the problem in australia when you have a scan that's been rolled out it's in the community patients are coming in the door with the scan but we don't have the high quality prospective evidence Evidence to allow this to go into a guideline or really influence practice or or determine are we actually uh, improving outcomes for patients Uh, and then along comes uh, the pro psma uh, trial published this week in the lancet as we say so michael uh, tell us about this study yeah, so this is the pro-PSMA study. It's a large Australian randomised trial. Uh, 300 men were randomised to either PSMA PET or standard of care, which is a CT scan and a bone scan. All the bone scans were performed with SPECT-CT, so these was sort of high-quality conventional imaging. And uh, then we followed up the patients for six months to define accuracy. As part of that, there was a selective crossover, so patients that underwent conventional imaging if they did not have widespread distant metastatic disease crossed over and had the PSMA PET, then we used all the information up until six months follow-up to define the accuracy according to histopathology, temporal changes in imaging and biochemistry using a fairly uh, standardised system that was reproducible across sites. And the uh, headline take-home message is that PSMA PET was 27% more accurate uh, than conventional imaging, so a accuracy of 92% uh, compared to, I think it was 65% for conventional imaging. So that's a large difference. Uh, it's not a relative, it's an absolute difference. And we also looked at uh, a number of other endpoints because there's not uh, just accuracy, but there's other things that are very important patient outcomes as well. There are, but wow, let's stop there for a minute uh, and, and, and look at this primary endpoint of accuracy comparing conventional imaging with PSMA PET. Um, before we get to it, let's think about the, the patient population renew. So these were newly diagnosed prostate cancer patients. Yeah. So they've had a biopsy. Um, very many have had an MRI prior to their biopsy. Right. And on their biopsy or their other characteristics, PSA, uh, rectal examination, they've been deemed to be classic high risk yeah. um, or indeed unfavorable intermediate risk. Yeah. Um, so primary 
a great group three, um, Gleason 4 plus 3, also included these patients uh, in the study. So if we think about the patient population, Renew, wh- what's your take on, on, on the, the importance of staging in these higher risk men being considered for either curative treatment with surgery or radiation, or uh, if they have metastases being considered for systemic treatment? The imaging is important, isn't it? I mean, this is exactly where it counts because it makes such a huge difference to their treatment um, and, it, and it really impacts on decision making. So it's these high risk patients where a scan could really sway you one way or the other. Um, in terms of treatment decisions. So that's that's where I think a, a scan with high accuracy sensitivity is important. And we know, of course, that uh, those men who look like they're localised high risk or unfavourable intermediate risk who go on and have localised treatment have quite a high biochemical recurrence, recurrence rate, uh, rate yeah. don't they? Like up to 40, 50% okay. of these patients will have a recurrence rate. And of course, um, as we've seen PSMA come into community practice, one of the things we observe is these patients actually have disease outside the prostate that you may only see on a, a PSMA pet. So if yeah. we go back to the primary endpoint again, Michael, so you had 300-odd patients um, being staged for their newly diagnosed unfavorable or uh, aggressive prostate cancer. Um, they were randomized to either get the CT and bone scan first or a PSMA PET scan first. And then, unless they had distant metastases, so the majority of patients didn't, they crossed over and got the other scan. Can you just tell us about that randomization sequence? Why was that important? Why didn't you just say, okay, well, everyone's going to have a um, CT scan first and bone scan, and then we cross over and do a PET scan? What was the the point in, in actually randomizing the order of the scans? So many studies are looking at a new diagnostic imaging technique. We'll just add the new test. And then there's an inherent bias because all that you are proving is that this new test adds benefit to the existing test. That means you would still be performing your conventional CT and bone scan and now you would perform an additional test as well, such as a PSMA PET, and that's expensive. Uh, Whereas the goal of this study was to have a really clean population with no bias, Uh, a population that have had CT bone scan and a population that have had a PSMA PET. So that's roughly 150 in each basket. And then we can look at a variety of endpoints, including accuracy, with no bias because you've had the PSMA PET, you haven't had any other imaging before that, or vice versa. And what we wanted to show was that PSMA PET is not an additional test, but that we can really throw out CT and bone scan and just do the PSMA PET. And this is critical for men because uh, it adds expense to have multiple tests, it adds inconvenience. The current standard of care is generally two visits to a hospital. A bone scan actually takes about four or five hours. You inject the radioactive tracer, the patient waits around the hospital for four hours, the scan takes about a half an hour, patient goes home, comes back on another day, has a CT scan that happens fairly quickly. A PSMA pet, we inject the radioactive tracer and we wait about one hour and it's all over in 90 minutes. So we've got a 90-minute test compared to sort of two visits, one that takes maybe 15 minutes for the CT and four to five hours for the bone scan. So this is a major advance, not just for accuracy in the other endpoints, but for patient convenience and perhaps health economic benefits for the, uh, for the hospitals in uh, reducing 
staff requirements and equipment needs. Before we drill into the accuracy, we should just for a moment acknowledge what a great effort it was from, uh, I think it was 10 sites that uh, were set up to do this study and the amazing patients who agreed to be part of it because you've just described, uh, you know, what is, what's involved in a CT and a bone scan and a PET scan, but almost all these patients did both, didn't they? They, they really uh, supported this trial. And I think that the recruitment was impressive, Michael, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So this study uh, started as a little collaboration of a few nuclear medicine colleagues of mine that applied for a grant from the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, PCFA, and Movember. This is not something nuclear medicine people normally do. They don't normally apply for grants. Usually it's the medical oncologists, perhaps urologists, but nuclear medicine people traditionally don't apply for these highly competitive grants. But we threw in our hat. This was in 2015 when the grant application call came. And uh, back at that time, probably most of the world, indeed even Australian neurologists, probably had not even heard of PSMA PET. Uh, so it was a bit of a high-risk grant uh, proposal at that time point, but uh, PCFA in November and the uh, com- International Grant Committee that assessed the grant loved it and it went forward with it. And we chose 10 sites at the time who had gallium generators. At the time, all PSMA PET was done with gallium PSMA. Now there's a few other alternatives. But back in 2015, there was only gallium PSMA. So we went forward with that and we selected 10 sites that had radiopharmacies on site who could get this going really quickly. And uh, we set up some quality control around the radiopharmaceutical production and also the PET acquisition. And we established really 10 sites where we had urologists working really closely with the nuclear medicine physicians and also radiation oncologists uh, and clinical trial specialists. So this was a great collaborative platform that was established for this study and it's now being used for three or four uh, further studies. Uh, So it's a wonderful achievement even beyond pro-PSMA. It's great, isn't it? Because I remember the time we were recruiting patients for ProPSMA and uh, that, you know, the whole process of counselling patients and discussing with them what, what it involves. And, and it's actually great to see the data come out of it. And I think it re- fully recruited six months early, if, I, if, if, um, if memory serves correct. So there was a lot of buy-in from the whole community, the, the urologists and radiation oncologists, the patients and supporters. So on to this primary endpoint. So the, the first goal of the, the study was to see what the accuracy was like. And, and in the paper, it details the, uh, how these endpoints were defined with hard criteria. For example, the, you know, when the prostate comes out or the lymph nodes come out and some soft criteria that are detailed in the paper. And ultimately then that was the standard. Uh, and you were able to say, okay, the PSMA PET got it right about 92% of the time, I think, or something like that, whereas the CT and bone scan in the same patients only got it right about 65% of the time. So this is the primary endpoint. It was very statistically significant, a 29% or whatever, 27% um, improvement in accuracy. So, Renu, um, what do you feel will be the, the impact of this to the treating clinicians? Uh, you know, let's presume now that... Um, You've had a PSMA PET CT on your patient and it's coming back with this information. First of all, do you believe it? Do we need a further study to, to prove that this scan is right? Are these colourful dots actually cancer is it, or, or what's the p- false positive rate like on these? I mean, that's the exciting thing. I think now we can we can take a PSMA PET scan result and have faith in that result um, and uh, and almost go forward with our treatment option without doing any additional scans. Um, and that's that's where I think the path is very clear now. Um, and that's the value I think this study adds. Uh, 
Yeah, that's that's true to say, I think, isn't it? So so tell us about the specificity of PSMA PET then, Michael. Um, we've all known and we've published um, a systematic review in European Urology you were part of showing that the specificity is very high. It's, it's of the order of mid-90s or thereabouts. In other words, if you have uh, one of these um, uh, avid lesions, high SUV, it's almost always right. Is that fair to say? I think that's correct, Declan. This is a really sensitive and specific uh, method. Now, often with imaging, when you have a new technology that's more sensitive, you often trade off specificity. So it's kind of a trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. And here, the new technique, PSMA PET, is both more specific and more sensitive. Uh, so both these contribute to the uh, improved accuracy. But accuracy is an interesting one because it's actually not that easy to define. And if the uh, listeners have some time, pull out the paper and read the detail about this because it's incredibly interesting because most people think histopathology is the gold standard. And I uh, tell our referring colleagues that histopathology is not the gold standard. It's interesting to reflect what I mean by that. But uh, the thought experiment I often give is we do a PSMA PET and we see 30 hot spots in bone lighting up really brightly. And you stick a needle in one of those and no cancer comes back. Uh, and you, if you believe the histopathology, then you would say that that is a false positive PSMA PET by definition because the pathology was negative. Uh, we don't care. We don't know what these 20 hotspots are in bone, but the biopsy was negative. And we know that the best test is actually time because if you follow up these patients, if those 20 lesions become 40 lesions and your PSA rises in correlation with that, you have your diagnosis that this, in fact, was a correct scan and the bone biopsy was wrong. And when I say to the histopathologist, your biopsy was a false negative, they laugh. They say there's no such thing as histopathologic false negatives. It's the, either the surgeon or the radiologist doing the biopsy that gave me the wrong tissue. So it was a sampling error. <laughs> the histopathology was correct, but they didn't give me the right tissue. So in this study incorporating all the data up to six months follow-up, we really came up with a very robust way to define accuracy. And I think uh, that might be useful for other studies moving forward as well. So I think that's Good the take-home message on the primary accuracy, primary yeah. endpoint of accuracy, Renew, is um, okay, if, if it's important that we want to know with this newly diagnosed um, aggressive-looking cancer, whether the patient has disease outside the prostate, a PSMA PET-CT is, uh, is vastly superior to conventional imaging. Conventional imaging, yeah, that's right. Let's have a chat about the other important secondary endpoints. There were some very interesting secondary endpoints in the study, Mike. Yeah, so the main secondary endpoints were management impact. We uh, sent out standardised questionnaires to the urologists and radiation oncologists uh, after randomisation, but actually before randomisation, so the imaging modality that was going to happen was not known, then after first-line imaging and after second-line imaging. So then we could discern if you changed from a radical prostatectomy to, let's say, hormone replacement or ADT because of metastatic disease. And uh, we saw a management change in the PSMA PET arm in, I have to look it up because I can't actually remember the numbers off the top of my head. I should know this. Do you know them, Renew? <laughs> While you look that up, Michael, I have, a, I have a question. You Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that is that part of the significance of, of the way you randomise these patients, looking at change in management? Uh, the random well, we just questioned at each point so that we could assess the change in management. The the randomization obviously did not impact that; it was it was independent. But what we saw is that 
uh, the referrers change the management in conventional imaging in 15% of cases. And when we say change in management, we meant that they either changed the modality from surgery to radiation or surgery to ADT, or they change, had a major change in the technique. So the radiation oncologist increased the radiation field or the surgeon decided to uh, radically change the pelvic nodal dissection field based on the PSMA PET finding. So that happened in 15% of men in conventional imaging versus 28% of men following PSMA PET. So roughly you know, a double in the rate of change of management. So that's a pretty important endpoint because we learn in medical school there's no point ordering a test unless it changes your management and the management changed in around twice as many patients following a PSMA PET. That's huge, isn't it? And also then when patients crossed over to the other arm. So I recall this, uh, you know, after we would get an imaging result, then we would say, what is your management plan now? And then when they'd cross over and have a PET scan, we again recorded uh, what our management was. So you were able to look at the crossover and the impact. So was there a further impact um, when patients crossed over from one arm to the other arm and vice versa? Yes. So that was a really nice thing about this study design. With the crossover, we could look at both the first-line management impact, should you have a PSMA PET first or conventional imaging first, and then, well, if you did have PSMA PET, was there any added value from having the standard of care performed after that? And with regards to management impact, we saw that only 5% of patients had a change in management if they had CT and bone scanning after PSMA PET, which was fairly minimal, versus 27% of patients uh, if they had a PSMA PET after CT bone scan. And in fact, we could also look at the accuracy after second-line imaging, and we found that there was only a correct change in stage in 2% of patients, 2 in 100, who had CT bone scanning after PSMA PET. So really the results of both the accuracy and the management impact told us that we could really stop doing the CT bone scans in the vast majority, almost all patients, and just do the PSMA PET. I think there'll always be a a uh, point where you do the PSMA PET and there's an equivocal lesion that's truly equivocal and you may choose to do a CT and a bone scan in those patients, but that's pretty unusual. So we now do a single test instead of two tests. And there were a couple of other endpoints about um, radiation dose, uh, I think was one. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, comment on that, please, Michael, because this may have an impact both for patients, but also for reimbursement and regulatory agencies might be impressed by the the idea that we're saving radiation as well as time for these patients. So as nuclear medicine specialists or radiologists, and I think particularly for patients, uh, exposure to radiation is uh, viewed as an unnecessary risk of these tests, so we want to minimise that. And I think there's probably a perhaps a misconception that some of these newer technologies like PET scanning uses more radiation than CT and bone scanning, uh, but in fact that's not true. So what we saw is that men randomised to PSMA PET had an average dose from the scan of 19 millisieverts, that's the way we measure radiation, compared to, actually that was for for CT bone scan, 19 millisieverts compared to 8 millisieverts for the PSMA PET, so less than half the dose uh, to the patient when you have a PSMA PET. Wow, amazing. Renu? Um, no, uh, were you going to... Well, I was going to uh, give Michael a break because right, uh, I'm, yes, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm pleased to say that um, uh, earlier uh, today I had a chat with um, Professor Caroline Moore um, who uh, wrote an editorial about your paper, Michael, um, in The Lancet. And um, Caroline, as, as many listeners will know, 
um, is a very eminent uh, academic urologist working at uh, University College London. Uh, and Caroline was senior author on the Precision Study, um, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, last year, um, which was again a practice-changing study that defined the role of MRI as a triage tool. And she wrote a very uh, well-informed editorial in, in The Lancet, and I was uh, very happy to have a chat with her earlier. She's an old friend of mine from uh, my training in London days. So, Professor Caroline Moore, uh, welcome to GUcast. Thank you. So uh, it's very kind of you to take a few moments out of your time. Um, we want to speak to you this morning about the ProPSMA paper, which you have uh, kindly written an editorial for in this week's Lancet. But before we go into that, uh, we are calling you in London. Uh, we're here in Melbourne. Um, so our thoughts are with you, uh, all your colleagues and patients in London. Looks like you're a few weeks ahead of us uh, on this uh, COVID outbreak. Yeah, that's right. And and. Of course, we're um, a couple of weeks behind Italy, so we're in full preparation mode now for what we expect to come. Terrific. And look, we wish you all the best as you go through this. We're a few weeks behind uh, in Australia, so uh, we are watching uh, your your developments and in particular your uh, preparations and reaction very closely. And uh, hopefully things won't be uh, quite as peaky, uh, to use the current terms, um, mm. uh, as everyone hopes. So, uh, ProPSMA, yeah. pro um, uh, thank you again for uh, your editorial in The Lancet this week, uh, Caroline. We've already been discussing uh, with the team here, with uh, uh, Professor Michael Hoffman and uh, Dr. Renu Epen, uh, the trial itself. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I suppose if I could ask you to give me a few of your uh, your take-home messages for why perhaps uh, PSMA imaging is, is, a, is of interest and indeed why staging of these uh, high intermediate or high risk prostate cancer patients with PSMA uh, may be of value? Sure. So, so PSMA is of interest because there's a crucial group of men who we know are likely to benefit from radical treatment. But within that group, there will be some men who get disease recurrence later. And it's likely that we can detect some of those men in the early stages when they don't have a signal of disease outside of the prostate on the standard imaging of CT and a bone scan, but they may well have that on a PSMA PET. And then we can keep a closer eye on them, offer them additional treatment and really try and get on top of that disease before it spreads elsewhere. So one of the limitations of the paper we've discussed is um, although we show that PSMA PET has certainly got higher accuracy to detect that type of cancer outside the prostate compared with conventional imaging, and indeed that knowledge might change management, we haven't shown that it might improve outcomes. Um, and and we, we struggle a little with this ourselves, Caroline. Um, uh, are, we, are we denying some men the opportunity to have what might be uh, you know, appropriate cancer management by having surgery or radiotherapy for what looks like confined disease um, uh, do we have to do the types of studies to show that the cancer outcome is improved by having your PSMA PET CT or is it just too difficult with localized prostate cancer to do studies that will take you know 10 or 15 years to reach those type of endpoints I suppose what I'm asking you is how do we embrace this into practice now uh, in the um, expectation that hopefully it might improve outcomes for our patients not just uh, not just improve the accuracy of the imaging Sure. So I think in terms of patient outcomes, there was a, a key change during the study, which was the publication of the Stampede data suggesting that 
radical radiotherapy for men with a small number of metastatic deposits was still of significant benefit. So we're in an interesting place where prior to you starting the study, we wouldn't have offered men with a node outside of the prostate. We may well not have offered them radical treatment, particularly if that node was distant from the prostate. But now we know that there is some benefit there, but that that treatment will be done in conjunction with other other treatments. So I think it's really important. And I was um, I was really heartened to see that in the patient information sheet for your study, you had warned men that we don't yet know whether any change in management due to new imaging will be of benefit. But I think it's a little bit like the MRI story in early diagnostic disease. It seems that uh, it's just the logical step that having more information at the beginning will help us towards better treatments, whereas saying we will just treat people on the more old-fashioned imaging studies which don't detect everything will leave us in this sort of undifferentiated state. In your editorial, you talk about uh, health economic aspects. You uh, you refer to the fact that the, the, there is a health economic arm to this study, which uh, will be a separate mm-hmm. publication. Can I ask you the situation for UK uh, patients, uh, Caroline? Is PSMA PET available? And do you think already with this uh, sort of study, uh, it may help with um, uh, uh, regulatory bodies approving the scan and importantly um, uh, reimbursing this scan for this select group of patients? Sure, yeah. So the situation in the UK is, um, as ever, a little complex in that we've had PSMA PET available in some centres for a few years. Um, it, then there was a directive um, from NICE that we weren't to be using PSMA PET because of the health economics. And so it was um, rarely available on the NHS. And there have since been some newly set up studies and some indications where certain hospitals can use PSMA PET. So there's certainly no clear national guideline. And part of what's needed there is the health economic aspect of this. So and whilst the first step in that is the diagnostics, the the kind of real key bit is how much it changes, changes treatment. But obviously, I appreciate it's going to take some time for those studies to come through. And finally, Caroline, um, we couldn't uh, finish this interview without asking you about uh, MRI scanning of the prostate. Um, uh, you led the uh, precision study published in New England Journal last year, which fun- you know, fundamentally changed practice all around the world. Uh, certainly for us, we embraced the precision paradigm of using MRI as a triage tool for men suspected of having prostate cancer. And we use that as a way of risk stratifying who needs a biopsy, who can avoid a biopsy. And then in those men with a with a, a lesion on a scan, we can offer a targeted biopsy. Can I ask you, do you feel uh, that um, PSMA might have a potential to um, augment uh, that type of decision making in the early setting? Uh, in other words, are there some men perhaps with um, a persistent high suspicion due to the PSA being high or a nodule uh, or a family history who have a normal MRI that perhaps PSMA might be uh, of utility in the primary in the early detection uh, of the primary? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we get a clear signal that the highest uh, risk cancers show up in the prostate on PSMA PET, but it's, I think we do get a much more detailed signal in the prostate from MRI. And in particular, we find that there can be some confusion over seminal vesicle invasion. So some 
uh, PSMA PETS will be reported as showing seminal vesicle invasion. The MRI looks normal. We then go on to do a targeted biopsy of that seminal vesicle. And actually, it was just some urine. And because the definition within the prostate is much less clear on PSMA than it is on MRI, I don't think it's going to be a major competitor for detecting cancer in the prostate in the earlier stages. I think its principal value at the moment will be in detecting disease outside of the prostate. Terrific. Fully agree. Uh, Professor Caroline Moore from uh, University College London, thank you very much uh, for joining us on GUCAST today. There you go. How lovely to hear from Caroline. It's great to hear from Caroline, wasn't it? Fantastic. Brilliant. Um, so I guess final questions maybe, Michael. Um, I mean, we we are really lucky in Melbourne and 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 to, to have just such easy access to PSMA PET. Now we have the confidence that we can use this as a sole uh, staging agent uh, in high-risk prostate cancer. But my question is, what do you say to those people who are at se- – or uh, clinicians who are at centres who don't have access to PSMA PET now that we know what a great modality it is? Well, I used to say you could just hop on a plane and come to Australia <laughs> and get a PSMA PET scan, but you can no longer do that. You can't now. The borders <laughs> are shut. <laughs> so it sucks now. Well, maybe a good enough reason for a two-week quarantine. What do you think? I'm not sure. Two-week quarantine for a PSMA PET. Tough one. And then two weeks <laughs> when you arrive it? back in your country. <laughs> but the real problem is you can't get on a plane anymore. They're all sitting at Changi Airport on the ground. It's a terrible yeah. situation. But but more seriously, this is an issue in many countries where uh, PSMA PET is just simply not available. I think that will rapidly change. And I think my hope would be that this evidence from the Lancet paper is the tipping point where... Uh, this test now becomes a new standard of care once it's incorporated in guidelines, once it's approved, uh, like in Australia where probably there's more than 50 centres where you can get a PSMA PET now. Really any nuclear medicine department with a PET scanner in Australia now offers a PSMA PET. I think we're just a little bit ahead of the rest of the world. Uh, That should be uh, widely available within the next two years globally. And hopefully the pro-PSMA trial will mean the reimbursement uh, will follow pretty quickly. So um, on that happy note, um, uh, Renu, it's been a fun first podcast if you like this sort of stuff. It's been fantastic. And congratulations, Michael. It really is practice-changing work. So it's it's been amazing to, to have a chance to speak with you about it. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to be on the first episode of GUCast. Thank you. And a special thanks to uh, Professor Michael Hoffman, our first guest uh, on GUCast, and uh, also to Professor Caroline Moore in London, uh, who joined us uh, uh, to make a comment. We will be back with you probably in the next week or so. Thank you and goodbye.